Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. One of my favorite things to do career-wise when I am struggling or looking for a mentor is to go out and identify people whose careers I really admire and then watch them from afar and study how they work and what they've done and what changes for them over time. So I first learned about Whitney Johnson through her first book called Dare, Dream, Do. And I have learned a tremendous amount from her from afar as she's built her business and grown her reach and uh, written more books and beyond. And she's one of those people that I, I haven't actually met in person or even spoken on the phone with yet and until today. And I so admire the work that she does and how she shows up in the world. And I feel it's such a privilege to, to learn from her in the way she lives in the world. So it is an honor to have her on the show. So I'll tell you a little bit about her if you haven't heard of her yet. Whitney Johnson, she's an innovation and disruption theorist. She does all things disruption. She's an executive and performance coach. And according to Thinkers 50, she was recognized as one of the world's leading management thinkers. Before this, she was an analyst on Wall Street, and she co-founded an investment firm with Harvard's Clayton Christensen. She's the best-selling author of Build an A-Team. And she's also the author of two other books. One is called Disrupt Yourself, and one is called Dare, Dream, Do. Her first book, actually, Dare, Dream, Do, it's about building dreams for your life. And I think many, actually, many of you listening, and I'm going to go back and read it again, would love this book because it has so many good applications for that time period of transitioning in your career and becoming a parent and dreaming up what your future life can look like. So today I have her on the show and we get to talk about how pregnancy is a disruptive force and so is parenting, but these can be really powerful forces for good. She shares some insight into her parenting journey and what it was like for her to first decide that she did want children and then negotiate that with her career and figure out how do I manage wanting to travel so much and be in this kind of work intensity while also being a parent. We talk about how to hire great people and how to build really good teams. And we also talk about what to do when you have people that are underperforming on your team or people who have outgrown a role or position. She has so much wisdom to offer us, so I'm so grateful that she joined us on the podcast. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Hey, hey, I made a thing and I want to tell you all about it. It's one of our new guides and it's up on our website. One of the biggest struggles in my business isn't coming up with new ideas or doing more. One of the biggest challenges is focusing, figuring out how to do less, and making sure I have clarity about doing just the right things. I wish I could say that I had it all figured out and I have a magic wand to make life easier, poof, presto, but not quite. But what I do have is a structure of questions, just three questions that I return to time and time again that helps me sort myself out whenever those piles of to-do lists are getting way too long. It's a three-step process, and I walk you through how to do it and what it looks like. 
three questions for clarity, simplicity, and a new superpower, which is saying no to the things that you don't actually need to do. If you want the free guide, head to startuppregnant.com slash stop. That's startuppregnant.com slash stop. S-T-O-P. And you can grab the guide for free. The link is also in the show notes. It's our freebie guide for figuring out what to drop, how to do less, and how to simplify your business whenever you feel the chaos descending upon you. All right, everyone. I am so, so thrilled to have Whitney Johnson joining us on the podcast today. Whitney, thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So I want to start with, I think, one of my most favorite and easiest questions. Would you tell us all what time you woke up this morning and what the first thing you did was? That is a great question. So I woke up around 5.30 a.m. And the very first thing I did was lay in bed for probably about a half an hour or 45 minutes thinking about or thinking through the outline for a speech that I'm giving. I'm actually speaking at BYU's business school graduation in August. It's kind of a big deal. And so I was thinking through what I want to say for that. So that's the very first thing I did this morning. Once I actually got out of bed, I got dressed and went and played tennis. Oh, Oh, how does your brain work in the morning? Do ideas come to you? Do you have like a clear stream of thought? Or is it more of a like slow warm up? It depends on the morning. Some days I'm like, I don't want to get up. But um, when I when I don't have that, I don't want to get up feeling. I'm actually really creative and get a lot of inspiration and ideas in the morning. So I am absolutely 100% a morning person. And then what do you do? You When you play tennis, talk to me about what the ne- next moves of the morning look like. Yeah. So after I played tennis, I um, came home and got cleaned up. I, I found it's interesting because even though I, when I'm not on the road and today I'm not on the road, I'm working from home, I'm finding more and more that I do need to get cleaned up because I am much more productive if I've, you know, taken a shower and gotten my clothes on as opposed to, I remember when I first started working from home, I'm like, jammas all day. And that just doesn't work very well. So I got, I got cleaned up and then I did a little bit more of a little bit of kind of meditate. I actually did the Headspace app to meditate because I was feeling kind of overwhelmed today. And then I also wrote in my journal for a few minutes. And then I sat down at my desk and then started actually writing out some of my ideas around the speech that I was just telling you about a few minutes ago. Mm. So that was, that was how I, how I on ramped slowly but successfully into my day. And at the time of this recording, we've got it's summertime. So tell me about your kiddos and where they are and what they're up to during this morning dance or journey, if you will? Well, for us, it's really easy because our oldest child, actually, he is 21 and he was home for about a week, but we just put him on a plane. He just left to go to Brazil to do an internship. He actually served a mission for our church for two years in Brazil. And so he speaks Portuguese and he's been home for about a year and he just went back for two weeks and is going to do an internship at a at a health clinic there. So he's really excited. So I don't have to do anything with him. We just have to <laughs> make sure he gets on the plane and has his passport, which is not necessarily that easy, but he did do it. And so that's done. Our daughter, she's a rising senior in high school. And she's actually in Virginia, they have this really cool 
thing called governor school. And so she's at that camp for a month and she's been gone for about two weeks. So for me right now, there is no dance with our children. We're actually having a simulated empty nester experience for the moment. Oh, that sounds divine. (laughs) 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 I am always curious. This is why I asked this question first, because I get to get this painting of what lives people are living right away, both parenting and business. You mentioned that you're on the road a whole bunch. What's the balance of being away versus working from home? What does that look like maybe over the last year? I have been on the road a lot. I just released a book on May 1st. And so I would say I have been on the road, I would say 60 to 70% of the time. It's It's been a lot. And what's interesting is like, like I actually really enjoy being on the road. I really like being home and I really like being on the road. And I found actually, and and maybe for people who are listening who have young children, they will especially appreciate this. But there's a sense of boundaries that come in when you, you know, there while you're at home, there are certain things you've got to get done while you're home. And then you'll wrap those up and then you'll go on the road. And while you're on the road, there's certain things you have to get done while you're on the road. And then you wrap those up and you can come home. And so there's lots of that you're able to bound your time in a way that I find really helpful to me in terms of being able to allocate my time and also parse it out into small enough chunks that it it feels much more manageable for me. That is so interesting to me because I I find that I've had a similar experience with the advent of daycare. I have really little kids right now. And the fact that it ends at the same time every day has surprisingly been a better boundary for me and my work than me five or 10 years ago. And I, I, that's so interesting that you mentioned that for traveling as well. It's like, here's the thing. This is it. Right. And it makes a big difference. And so when people say to me, do you like travel? I'm like, yeah, I loved, I love being on the road. There's lovely and fun things that I get to do when I'm on the road. And I'm really productive when I'm on the road. And I love being at home. So it's wonderful because you love and you get to do both. Hmm. And then there's a lot right now because you just released this book. And so I'm sure that it swells and it ebbs and it flows. So I want to talk about not just this book, but you've written several books. So I want to go back a little bit and set the stage before we get into team building, which is your latest book, and ask you to talk a little bit about disrupt yourself. So, so much for people listening, so much of Whitney's work is all about disruption, disrupting the self, disrupting the way we do business. Can you tell our audience? Why is disruption so important and and what is it for people listening? Well, disruption, um, it's a term of art that was coined by Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, who I had the privilege of co-founding an investment firm with in 2007. And at its simplest, it or you know, its most basic, it's it's basically a silly little thing that takes over the world. So you can think about how the telephone disrupted the telegraph, the light bulb disrupted the gas lamp, and then in business, more recently, we've seen things like Toyota disrupted General Motors, Netflix disrupted Blockbuster. We have got Uber disrupting cabs. So that's what it looks like for a product. Well, the work that I've done or the big aha that I had as we were investing is that this whole theory of disruption that we were applying to products and applying to people, excuse me, and to services also applies to people. And so I've spent the last five, six years researching and codifying this, this framework or seven point framework of personal disruption so that whether you're 
trying to scale an organization, you're trying to build a team, you're trying to manage your career, you've got this structure that allows you to do it. And, and fundamentally, this whole framework of disruption actually is a framework for managing change. So it, again, to this idea of being able to bound things, it gives you a structure for being able to manage change more successfully, because we all want to change, we all know we need to change. So the question is, is how can we do it so that it feels, feels manageable to us? I think it's so fascinating that in terms of disruption, you could think of it as like a loose kind of open, oh, everything has to change, everything's an upheaval. But actually, what you're suggesting is that there is structure and organization and boundaries. And in fact, those boundaries might even be more beneficial to creating environments for disruption. Can you walk us through you? So you have the seven step framework of ways to do personal disruption and and keep yourself on this learning curve that you talk about. Can you walk us through like what this learning curve is and why why it might be so surprising to people how it looks? Yeah, absolutely. So I love talking about the learning curve. So to give you a little bit of background, as we were investing, we as I just said, I had this whole insight that it this theory of disruption wasn't just about products, it was also about people. Well, in the process of investing, we were using something called the S-curve that was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962. And the whole idea of that S-curve was to help you figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted, but also to make what seemed unpredictable, predictable. So let me give you a business context, and then we'll start to shift to what that looks like for us as people. So picture in your mind an S. And so you've got the base of an S. And initially, when a product is introduced, the growth is very, very slow. Time passes, time passes, time passes, not much is happening. But then you reach this tipping point or the knee of the curve. And that can be 5, 10, maybe 15% market penetration, where you re- move into the tipping point where growth accelerates. And this is the hyper growth. And then at 90% or saturation, now you're at the top of that S, the growth tapers off. So you've got the base, the steep part, and the top of the S. So that's what it looks like for a product. But the big, big insight for me is that this could also help us understand people. It could help us understand how we learn and how we change. So what does that mean? Every time you start something new, you're at the base of an S. Your growth is going to be slow. You're going to work hard. You're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing. You're inexperienced and you're going to be there if you're in the work environment, probably for six months to a year. And think about, I know you're talking a lot on the show about pregnancy. The first three months, you're like, I don't really know what I'm doing. What's this going to look like? Then you move into the sweet spot, that steep part of the S where you're feeling increasingly competent. And with this comes confidence. And this is the exciting part of a learning curve where all your neurons are firing and on the job. That's typically year one to year three, maybe year four, unless you have some really new challenges that can elongate that. But typically, it's one to three years. That's the super fun part of the curve. It's a sweet spot. And then you get to the top of the curve where it looks like everything should be smooth sailing. It's the top of the curve. Things are easy. You're a master. But because you're no longer learning, because you're no longer enjoying the feel-good effects of learning, you actually get bored. And so what has to happen at that top end of the curve, if you don't jump your plateau, 
becomes a precipice. And so the idea is you want to learn, move up the curve, and then leap, and then repeat. Because we are all learning machines. We're wired to learn and change. And when we honor that biology of change, when we are willing to get to the top and disrupt ourselves, then we're always learning. And when we're learning, because we get that dopamine hit, we're happy. It also sounds so much like parenting, right? You, the That S-curve, the bottom of the S-curve, when you take the leap and you welcome a newborn into your life, it's you're not going to get it in 12 weeks. It, six months to a year might be the steep, steep, steep part of that learning curve. Can you tell us about your parenting journey? What was yeah. it like for you? When did you... When did you know or not know that you were thinking about having kids and how did that disrupt or change the trajectory of your career? Oh, such a great question. The first thing I would say, I don't know that there is a much bigger disruption that we can have than the decision and the actual being a parent. I mean, it is hugely and massively disruptive in a very, very positive and wonderful way. Uh, I'll I'll talk more about that in a second. But uh, what I would say, so we got married and I had absolutely no interest in having children. I thought, you know, someday I might... But um, given my own background growing up, I'm the oldest and, and, and my parents not meaning to, I ended up being kind of the emotional parent. And so I was like, no kids, don't want a kids, don't want to be a mother. And I think also there was a sense that I would lose my identity and my sense of self if I became a parent, I would somehow get subsumed. And so we were married for 10 years before we decided to have children. And it wasn't time. And we felt good about that. Like, it's fine. We're good not having children. During that 10 years, I graduated from college. We moved to New York. My husband was getting his PhD at Columbia. I started my career. I actually started as a secretary because I had majored in music. And I started to get my footing. And so Then around five years in, we are like, now it's time to have children. And so we had this feeling, this sense inside of us that it was time for us to do. We felt it was important to have children given our our faith and our belief, like we want to have children, it's important to do this. And now was the time to do it. And it was very easy to get pregnant. I was very, very fortunate. And so once we did that, it was lovely, but I will say I felt incredibly, incredibly incompetent as a mother, just so incompetent. I remember one experience in particular that really I think is emblematic of how uncomfortable I felt with this whole being of a mother. David, our son, the one that's going to Brazil now, was a a baby. We were living in New York City at the time and he, we had gotten in a cab. We were coming home from church and David threw up in the cab he threw up. And I just, oh, by the way, I didn't even know how to kind of put our stroller up and down because I was relying, relying on other people <laughs> to do it. Like, I mean, that that, that yes. really d- demonstrates the the feeling and level of, of uh, discomfort that I had with this. And so he throws up in the cab. I'm like, what do I do? I just get out of cab. I throw $20 at the cab driver. And I'm just like, Ugh, I, I just don't know what I'm doing. At the same time that I was having all these feelings of struggling and not knowing, again, low end of the S curve, I still still remember when David was born that for the first time in my life, I felt more me than ever, than ever. And so it was really hard. And I think I was really scared of like, how do I do this? And, and I think one of the biggest fears that at least I have, and I think probably most parents secretly have is, will my child love me back? Because I love them deeply, but will they love me back? And that's scary. Mm -hmm. 
that's a scary thing because here you are, you're giving your whole heart and soul and incredibly vulnerable. And will they love me back? And we don't know if they will. And so I would say it's gotten easier. I feel like I'm getting better and better as a parent. Some some mothers, I think, are fantastic baby mothers, and some are fantastic tween mothers, and some are fantastic adolescent mothers. I think I am much more of a teen and adult mother because I like to be able to talk and have a conversation and to interact with them. So anyway, I'll stop there. I could talk all day, but <laughs> I'll, I'll pause there. Oh, I love that you said that. I actually, I think embedded in the last thing you just said is the argument for having lots of adults in people's lives because I like it's really hard to be good at every single stage of parenting. And And a friend of mine is like, oh, I'm I'm not good with babies, but I'm great at school age kids. And I was so grateful to hear other women say that because then you can sign because I also have friends that are great at babies. Right. Like, right. Just everyone has a different skill set. You don't have to be good at all of them. And you can also not like parts of it and still be a great parent. Oh, this is so interesting. So so I, I just want to keep hearing more because I want to hear not only how it kind of shifted your your relationship to your work, but also I have this idea, and this is really what I that at the heart of what I wanted to talk to you about on this show. This idea that pregnancy can be and parenting can be a really positive force for disruption in the business world and in the personal world, but it, it feels like we're still grasping at straws in society to. to to believe that to be true or to understand that to be true. Are there ways in which becoming a parent has shifted the way that you do your work in ways that have surprised you? Before I answer that question, can I answer one slightly different question? Please do. Please do. Okay. So so I was thinking about this idea when I knew that I was going to come on your podcast and like, you know, what does pregnancy do and what does this look like and how can it influence things? And I, I was thinking back to my experience when I first got pregnant with David and I was working in investment banking at the time and I did not want anybody to know. Like I, you know, I got these St. John dresses and I was able to hide it till five months in and I was changing jobs at the time. I was like, I did not want anybody to know. And so I really felt to this point that you just made of like, I needed to somehow hide that. And I remember a few years ago is having a conversation with a few people, Ruth Ann Harnish, who I think many people on your podcast will know and is in part of our social circle. And she said, she made a really interesting comment to me that really shifted my thinking on pregnancy and being pregnant in the workplace. And she said that when someone comes to her and says, I'm pregnant, that first of all is transparent, but it also opens the door to really see how this person thinks strategically. Because if you know that you're about to have a baby, what do you have to do? You have to prepare to have that baby. You have to prepare to um, have the workplace be gone. You be gone from the workplace while you're on maternity leave. And if you think about, you know, the book by Michael Gerber, the E-Myth, he's like, the whole point of being an entrepreneur is not to be the technician working in the business. It's the person who's the entrepreneur working on the business. And that applies whether you're working inside of a large organization or running your own business. And so one of the things that pregnancy does is it gives you the opportunity to think about how will things run when I'm not here? And so if we are willing to take that as a challenge, a personal challenge, if we as organizations and companies are willing to take that on and say to the person, I'm so happy that you're going to have a baby. This is a wonderful experience. It's wonderful for you. It's wonderful for your children. 
children. It's wonderful for society. And it's wonderful for you to figure out how things are going to run smoothly while you're gone for three months. That's a real opportunity hmm. to me. I think that's so – I'm so glad that you said that, Whitney. And and what's coming to mind for me is my two-year-old right now, we're going through potty training. And, and I was reading this book and it said, this is a really great opportunity for you to see how your child learns, just to watch. And it gave me these shivers just because I was like, oh my God, I'm not trying to like make him do something. I'm not trying to force something on him. I have the the privilege of watching him learn a new skill. And I will learn as much, but just by watching him go through this as, as also how good am I at teaching? Like what's our, like what's our dynamic as we are getting to know each other as humans. And what you just said about like watching somebody go through this, how do they think strategically? How do they respond to stress? How do they learn? How do like all of these skills are such high quality things to learn about people. And it's like the laboratory in which we get to learn, but we don't treat it like that. Right, exactly. And I think, I think layering onto that, I mean, one of the most difficult things that any of us ever do in the workplace, or actually in life generally is to get buy in for ideas that we have, we're wired that if I have an idea, I think it's brilliant. If you have an idea, I think it's less brilliant, because it's yours, and it's not mine. And so when you're pregnant, again, you've got this laboratory, this opportunity, it's this short term stint that you've got to prepare for. But how do you get buy in for what you're trying to do buy in around the um, pregnancy, buying around the maternity leave, buying around when you come back, buying around what you want to negotiate once you do come back. It gives us all sorts of opportunities to practice getting buy-in, which I would argue is one of the most important skills that any of us have, any of us need to negotiate our way through life. Because that's what buy-in is, is it's a, it's, it's a form of negotiation. And it applies whether it's to your partner, to your children, to your boss, to your colleagues, to your the people you're managing. Wow, that's a really good point. So, in uh, using the disruption metaphors further, one of the disruption mechanisms you talk about is the moving sideways one. That I think you talked about it like a slingshot, which. Um, I want to see if we can explore applying this to pregnancy. I think for many women, they fear that pregnancy and maternity leave are steps completely backwards. Like it's just taking them off this speeding train and it can be really bad for their careers. Do you have thoughts about how we can reframe or rethink this as a useful time that's like a lateral or a sideways or a strategic move? Like, What do you think about this as, a, as an idea? First of all, I really love it. I love that we're having this conversation. And I what I would say is that there are going to be some organizations where they are going to just see you as uh, moving, you know, de derailed, not, you know, sidetracked, just derailed, sidetracked, but certainly not moving forward. And there are going to be organizations like that. And I think that in and of itself is giving you lots of good information in terms of how we are allowing people to navigate through life. I, I do think that there is this, we, we kind of touched on this already, is this, this opportunity of going on maternity leave. It allows you to see, can I plan things strategically so so things can run without me? Like, what does that look like? I also think it allows us to, to think, how, how do I want to say this? Part of this is up to us. I, I think that we forget how important it is to be a mother, how important it is to 
have these skills of knowing how to nurture, knowing how to care for someone, how what a privilege it is for us to carry a child in our belly. What a privilege it is if we can't carry the child in our belly to be able to adopt a children. What a privilege it is to mother. And I think this is, I, I'm going to sidetrack again because I think this is really important. I remember after our our first child was born, like I literally was like, I'm going to get pregnant. And in five days I got pregnant and then boom, like baby on demand, complete and total baby on demand. And so I thought that I was going to do the same thing when I was ready to pr- get pregnant again. I had timed it exactly when I was going to have the baby, et cetera. And then I miscarried. And I remember feeling like I had this really strong feeling that, that, and, and, you know, I, I believe in God. And so I had this strong feeling of like, you need to understand that having a child is a gift. This is a gift that you need to not take lightly. And so that was really important. I mean, it was an important, important learning for me. I was obviously able to get pregnant again, but I think that one of the things that we do and we allow ourselves a little bit so that, so yes, there's a system and there are some systems that are going to be more amenable to our being pregnant and having children than others. But I do think that there is a piece of us that we're like, I'm pregnant. Like I did, like I did 21 years ago. Oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, I'm embarrassed. Oh, this is going to be awful. Instead of saying, isn't this wonderful? I'm going to have a baby. I am confident that as I go through this crash course masterclass of having a child, I'm going to be a much better contributor, a much better manager, a much better person in managing my time. I'm going to think much more strategically um, and really being able to look at, at, at it as a way to get better as a manager, get better as a contributor. And so Again, this is this is it's it's not an either or, it's a both and. We've got to pick the right systems, but I do think that we get to choose the narrative. Um, and so part of it is up to us to really think about what do we want that narrative to be and are we willing to have this be to be holistic around it? Oh, I love that. I'm getting slightly emotional. I, I could be that I'm currently pregnant and that's why, but also it's just such a beautiful thing that you're saying. And and what an what a great reframe as well. Like there we're inundated with so much cultural noise, so many stories out there of hide it, this could be bad. You know, we, when you're swimming in culture, sometimes we we start to to take it on, but there's this chance to step back and evaluate your mindset and and say, "Wait, what do I choose to believe? Like what's, what, what could this be? And, and to say it's just such a beautiful and wonderful opportunity. Hmm. I, I love hearing that. So <laughs> your latest book, you just came out with another book. I want to talk about this book, Build an A-Team. It's about be, uh, building morale, improving performance, being a great boss. Like, how do you create a really great team? And and in this book, uh, for people listening, a lot of the arguments come, the ideas are around, I'm sure Whitney will say them better, but they're around creating learning environments. People want to learn, they want to grow, they want to be on this S-curve. I would, I would love to talk to you first about the top and the bottom of this curve. Uh, and I polled our community, our startup pregnant community about, um, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to interview Whitney. How do, what should I ask her? And people asked me first, how do you engage people who seem to be doing the bare minimum? Looking mm. at the bottom of the curve, how do you, if you have a team and you seem to have some lackluster players, what do you do there? It's a really good question. So I, 
So first of all, I would say that every single person is on a learning curve. And so we're all on a learning curve. We actually, you know, our life is one big learning curve. And then there's these fractals of, you know, our career and then roles that we have. And so there are going to be times when people are just lazy. So I I don't want to discount that. But I think more often, um, when people are at the loan of the curve, and they're not doing a great job, there can be a couple of things happening. Number one, um, it might be us as the manager, where remember earlier how I talked about things being bounded, you know, bounding for work and travel? Well, sometimes when people start something new, we feel very insecure and we feel very unsure of ourselves. And so we don't, we're, it's like we're flailing and floundering with our arms and things like going everywhere. I'm waving my arms, pretend like you can see me waving my arms right now. And so one of the reasons they may not be doing very good work is that they're not getting enough information from you about the quality of their work. And so if you can bound it a little bit by giving them feedback, and when I, what do I mean when I say that? Sometimes when people first start, we're like, okay, that was good, that was good, that was good, that was good. And they're not getting any, that's not working. And people don't actually feel safe until you give them some feedback around something that's not working and they realize, oh, she didn't kill me dead. I guess it must be safe here. I can keep going. And so for people at the low end of the curve, if they're feeling like they're not doing a great job, one thing could be is that they're they're not getting enough feedback um, from you in terms of they're not enough boundaries, things aren't tightly scoped enough that they can get information to know how they're doing. And so they're just floundering. And so that can be translated or misinterpreted as they don't really care when in fact, they're just feeling insecure. The other possibility, okay, so I said, they just don't want to work. That's one possibility. The other possibility, number two, is they they need more information to know how they're doing or feedback. If you think about skateboarders, they get lots of information. They learn quickly because, you know, if they make a wrong move, they fall. So give people that tightly scoped assignment. The third possibility is that they're in the wrong curve. So if you think about a learning curve and the theory of disruption, it states that when you pursue a disruptive course, your odds of success are six times higher, but that's 6% excuse me, to 36%. So there's still like this 64% chance that you're on the wrong curve. I'll give you a quick example, because I think this is really powerfully illustrates this. When I was working on this book, I in this story, actually, I'm, I don't think it actually made it into the book. But there was a young woman, she had studied engineering at Purdue and went to work at Procter and Gamble. And she wasn't doing a good job, like really not doing a good job. Her name was Jocelyn Wong. And they're like, we're gonna, you know, like, well, we're not sure what to do with her. Well, it turns out there was some Someone, a manager, another manager who said, you know what, she works hard. She seems to have, you know, smart. Um, so let's move her to marketing. Well, it turns out that Jocelyn Wong was really, really good at marketing to the point that she today has been the CMO at two organizations, including she's the CMO at Lowe's, the home building store. So she was on the wrong curve. So, uh, so again, Sometimes people just don't want to work. I think more often than not, because remember, we talked about learning and learning makes us feel good. It, 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 feel, it makes us feel this sense of self-efficacy. I think more frequently, I would try, what are we doing to make sure that they have a sense of the mission of the organization, our sense of um, mission or vision for them within the organization, that what they're doing matters, that they've got the feedback, the training that they need, not necessarily from us, but they just get that training. And then there's also the possibility, you know, it might not not be the right curve. Because remember, people 
tend to lead on their resume with things that they do well, not with what they do best, because we all undervalue our superpowers because our superpowers come naturally, reflexively, how could they possibly be valuable? So the, the odds that a person's actually in the wrong seat are, are, are higher than you might think they, they would be. Oh, that's so interesting. Wait, you just said something also right at the end about our superpowers come naturally, so we don't actually give them enough credit. Tell me more about this. Yeah. So if you think about it, think about something that like a compliment that you get all the time and you find yourself completely deflecting it. So part of that's like the the girl thing, but men do it too. But like, you know, girl, boy, sorry, not girl, no, woman. Right, right. <laughs> we, we, um, we do it, you know, we, we just deflect it like, oh, I can't possibly take that compliment compliment. But sometimes it's because we're like tired of hearing it because we hear it all the time or, you know, we feel like people are pigeonholing us. And then the other part of it is just like, we look at it and we go like, that is so stupid. Like, that's just easy. That's just common sense. Like, really, why is someone complimenting me on that? Well, the fact is, is that it's not easy for everybody. It's just easy for you. And so, but because it's easy for you, and you don't like, it's like, it's like breathing, you're like, the ability to breathe isn't valuable until you can't breathe. And so what happens is that you just end up like completely devaluing it, like you undervalue everything that you do really well. And so what I sometimes see happening is that your genius isn't even on your resume because you just you're like that's not a big deal it's just not a big deal everybody does that that's so so funny you hire people who didn't write what their genius is on their resume so that's why you get them into a seat and you're like uh she's really good but this isn't the right seat for her. I need to move her. Or he's really good, but this I'm not sure this is the right seat. I need to move him. And so that six months at the low end of the curve allow, you know, we talk about iterating around product market fit. Well, iterate around people market fit and, and give that first six months just to make sure, you know, are they going to work? But also, are they on the right spot within the organization? So then looking at the other side of the curve, people who are at the end of a steep learning curve, they may be feeling a little bit bored. And this comes up in a question, another question we got from the community. She says, I have a close, well, she said she hired someone who's blowing her mind. She's really great. She's incredibly talented, but she's constantly terrified that she's going to leave. And she said, how do I keep her engaged and entertained? Or do I just know that she's only going to be here for a few months because she's too good for this job? Can you talk to this part of the of the learning curve? Absolutely. So so your instinct is is spot on that you're worried. Um, her instinct is spot on the worry that she's going to leave because if you're at the top of the curve, you're bored. And when you're bored, you either leave or you get complacent, which would be really bad because you don't want her to get complacent and stay. And so there's a couple of things that you can do. Number one is just have that conversation. It was really interesting. I remember interviewing for my book and actually on my podcast, a fellow by the name of Patrick Bichette, who was the former CFO of Google. And when Eric Schmidt hired him, he's like, Patrick, I don't know if I can hire you because you're going to get bored. And like, because you've been a CFO before. And they were like, we want to hire you. So, so Eric Schmidt says to him, I'll make you a deal. Whenever you start feeling like you're getting bored, come talk to me. And so as a consequence of that, they added, you know, operations and they, they, uh, over time, he added like five or six different things to his, his role. And so one of the things that your um, community member can do is just have the conversation and say, okay, learning curve dopamine, you're at the top, you're really fantastic, I want to keep you. What else 
needs to be done, could be done. And she doesn't need to talk money because money's not going to do it. What else would you like to be doing? What other opportunities do you, do you see that will allow us to elongate the sweet spot of the curve so that you can enjoy staying here for a longer period of time? And so that would be the conversation that I would have. Because remember, you can get to the top of the curve, but you can also stay in this sweet spot for a very long time if you're throwing at a person, like I just mentioned with Patrick Pichette, enough stretch assignments that are pushing you and pushing you and pushing you. You're only at the top of the curve once tedium sets in, once you're like, oh, we already tried that and you're not really having fun anymore. Um, so so you use time as an initial marker, but the real marker is is how engages the person in the work. And so if you're if the person who asked this question can first of all have the conversation with her and once you have that conversation, say, okay, how can we make this so this continues to be fun for you? Then let's do it. Now, if none of that works, then what I would say to her is do what she can to find something for her to do, either with a client, with a trading partner, so that she can really be an ambassador for her and her organization for a lifetime. Because that's, you know, you want to build one A-team on your team, but I think the way you really build A-teams across your career is when it is time for a person to jump to a new curve and there is nowhere for them to jump inside of your organization to be gracious and and helpful to them in finding something uh, finding a new curve mm-hmm. which is ha- hard to do really hard to do because we feel a sense of betrayal but we got to do it oh this is so fascinating and this reminds me one of the things i admire the most about my husband is he constantly creates new work for himself and he went from being a creative person to teaching himself how to code to teaching himself project management three really hard challenging skills and he just keeps making himself advantageous but but what I what has also been such a important part of this is clients and his bosses recognize, oh, you want to learn how to how to code and be a technologist? We'll make a job and a position for you. And it may take three to six months of being not the best, but we trust that you can grow there. What an interesting Wow. Wow. Yeah. What, co- what company is this, Sarah? Oh, he works, uh, I think most people know this, but he works with Seth Godin. So he was the creative director and now he's the technologist. And Seth is an incredible human being and he constantly lets Alex explore. That's a perfect example of what we were just talking about. And so, and with being able to continue to learn, leap and repeat for your husband, Alex, he could potentially stay there forever. That's I mean, because the, yes. he, he, gets, <laughs> he gets to keep learning. It's fantastic. I love it. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yeah, his motto is he wants to learn for a living. And I just it it's really, it's a blessing in our lives. So the final question I have on my list to ask you about is most of our audiences, female founders, female entrepreneurs in leadership positions or in companies thinking about starting side projects, side hustles. And when you think about building a team from scratch, a new, you know, hire, making that first hire, three or four people in. What are some tools or advice you have for making sure that you build this great team from the beginning? Like, are there any traps that you see people walking into or common mistakes that people make? And are there ways that we can do hiring early on better? Mm, Yeah, I have lots of thoughts. Um, One initial thought I have is that I think sometimes when we're hiring people, we, especially when we're early days as a founder, we're, we're looking for 
we've got functional roles that we need to fill on our team. So like I need, you know, I need a fractional CFO or I need someone who can do operations or I need someone who can do the technology or marketing or whatever. So we can get pretty clear on the functional jobs that we need to hire for. I think one of the, one of the pitfalls for people is we're not clear on the emotional jobs that we're hiring for. And I think we have to be really, really reflective because sometimes that sometimes shows the underbelly of who we are. And this goes back to the, you know, referring back to EMF because I happen to be listening to this right now is sometimes we hire people because we want them to take care of us or we hire people, you know, kind of emotionally as we're trying to go through this founding of a business or we're hiring them because we want to have someone just kind of to talk through to or we want to somehow have them take care of the business while we, you know, don't, we kind of abdicate a little bit. And so I think we really need to be clear on the emotional reasons why we're hiring people and make sure we're hiring for the right emotional reasons and not the wrong emotional reasons and also make sure a hundred percent I think this is for women in particular our emotional ups and downs Alan Mulally former CEO of Ford said this he said when you're in charge your face isn't yours anymore any emotion that we have as a founder gets amplified like the ups the downs, whatever. And so we have to really do a good job of not bringing our emotions to work. Like we can care, we can be upset, but we have to keep them in check. And so that would be, you know, sort of apart from build an A team, that to me is like really, really important as a founder, um, as I'm building my own business, obviously. So in terms of a team, a couple of thoughts there, and we already alluded to this, is this idea of hiring for potential, not for proficiency. We tend to think that we only want people who are expert, 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 and we need a few of those, but we don't only need those. And so if you take come back to this idea of the learning curve, what we found in our research, um, as we've administered a diagnostic, as we've worked inside of organizations is that if everybody's on a learning curve, your organization then is a collection of those learning curves. And you build a great team, a team that's optimized for innovation, for working together well by having at any given time, 70% of your people in the sweet spot of the curve. And I know if there's like five of you, then that means, you know, three are in the sweet spot. And one, you know, 15% of your people at the low end of the curve who are brand new, inexperienced, ask lots of questions like, why do we do it like this? Because that gives you innovation. And then you want to have one person or excuse me, 15% at the high end of the curve, who really is the expert who knows how to do things. And but they can't be there too long. And because if they are, then they get bored. And so what you can do with a more startup type organization is assess where people are on the learning curve. Okay, you know, I know I want 30, 70% in the middle, 15 in the low 15 in the high, if I've got way too many people at the low end of the curve, what that means is I probably need to hire a consultant or two who can come in as a ringer, train them, then leave. If you've got too many people at the high end of the curve, then you've got the problem that the community member alluded to is they're going to get bored, you're top heavy, and you're also not necessarily going to innovate. And so, so anyway, so as you're thinking about your organization, think about having that mix. Think about the fact that when you started this organization, you were visionary, you were charismatic, people bought in, they wanted to work with you, they wanted to work on the vision, but they are going to need to change. They are going to need to learn and grow and jump to new curves. And so be aware of that and sensitive to that so that they'll continue to want to grow with you and not at some point be like, oh, I don't really like working for you anymore. Well, they've got to keep learning. And as, as long as you allow them to keep learning, then you're going to be able to have people stay, no revolving door, and you're going to be able to continue to be innovative. 
That's so interesting. And and the idea of not hiring just one person, but maybe hiring one plus an expert and saying, hey, this person's great. Like they'll be here for a number of years because they're right at the start of their learning curve. And here's somebody who can help train them or be a, a sounding board. That's just such an interesting idea to rethink how we do hiring. Yeah, because you don't necessarily want to hire that person at the high end because they're either too expensive, they don't want to do it, they'll get bored. So, and, and as CEO more and more, we're not teaching everybody how to do everything. We're facilitating. It's like for people who have ever homeschooled, not that I have, but I have lots of friends that I do, that do, they don't teach their children in high school all the subjects. They basically go out and they get the resources so that the kids can learn those subjects. And I think it's the same inside of it. You can apply that inside of your business. Like, I don't know how to code, but if I have someone on my team who kind of knows how and I want to have them on board, then get an expert, train them, and then they can they can move along. And we know from the research that when people feel trained, they don't leave, they feel loyal. Mm. That's so good. And when they're, when they're, which you alluded to earlier, encouraged and supported as they're leaving uh, throughout their entire lives and careers, or as they make shifts through different companies, then you have loyalty and cross company connections. Yep, absolutely. So Whitney, what's next for you? You're, you're on book tour. You are, what are you building next? And what are you looking forward to? What I'm doing right now is we're playing out the book. So we just started it in May and really trying to to evangelize for the book as much as possible. I think one of the things that happens with a book is you really have to give it about a year, especially when you feel like the ideas are sticky and excuse me, just stay with it and and move that along. So that's one of the big, big um, focuses right now for me, uh, which involves things like not only continuing to go out and doing the keynoting and the consulting, but, but thinking through how do we create workshops? How do we create tools that people can use inside of organizations? So it, I don't necessarily have to be there, or even someone from my team have to be there, but people can train their team so that they're saying, okay, we want to retain our talent. We've got 30,000 people here. How do we um, have this learning curve be part of the DNA, part of how we think or the map inside of our organization so that we can manage talent in that form. And so, so I'm in, I'm in kind of the I'm moving into the sweet spot and then looking at how do I actually scale this into a, a much larger business. Right, right. You deploy this book <laughs> out all over the world. Exactly. Well, Whitney, I am so grateful you took the time to join us on the podcast. I probably should have told you this in the beginning, but I'll say it out loud in in the uh, for everyone listening. Whitney has been one of those people who I've always even though we have not spoken in person ever before, has been one of those people I look to as a mentor from afar, where I just watch your career and I love the moves that you're making and I look through all of the ways that you're thinking about the world and I learn so much from you, even though you're not like in my literal life as a mentor and I want you to know how much that means to me. Thank you. Yeah. I had no idea. Thank you. Thank oh, you. I've been that following you through through all your books. So I will link up all of your books in the show notes. And Whitney has an amazing podcast, which I will link to as well, for people who are listening and want to follow along with what she's doing. And her latest book, Build an A-Team. It's really an excellent book. I've been reading it over the past few weeks. Where else can people find you on the internet? Where do you hang out? 
It's easiest if you go to WhitneyJohnson.com. You can find me there in case you didn't tell your community yet. So if you want to take the learning curve locator and see where you are, you can on my website, WhitneyJohnson.com forward slash diagnostic and see where you are. And, and certainly for those of you who are founders, I mean, you can take it and you can also have a couple of people on your team take it and just kind of suss out, okay, where are we on the curve and how do we need to manage each person on our team um, depending on where they are on their current curve. So that could be a really good and useful tool for for your listeners. Ooh, love that. I'll put that in the show notes. All righty. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.